What is punk rock? It's a question that is asked almost in jest at this point, because there really isn't a definitive answer. Punk rock, unlike other genres of music, has such an array of bands representing a wide range of sounds, it almost defies description. The connecting thread, to me, has always been the contrarian, irreverent attitude behind the music, and that attitude was what attracted me to it in the first place. Lured to punk rock via heavy metal, I grew up loving the music, but never did a full nosedive to the point where it defined me and defined my style, etc., etc. In fact, I can't really say that about heavy metal either. Whatever genre of music I got into, I always felt like a bit of an outsider, never really feeling like I fit in. I I remember saying on Damien Abraham's Turned Out a Punk podcast that whenever I was in heavy metal circles, I always felt more attuned to punk rock. And when I was around punk rockers, I always felt like a metalhead. But my interest never waned, and I was always frothing at the mouth to get into these bands. This is before the internet changed the world, and back then it was a giant game of pin the tail on the donkey, groping in the dark, trying to find bands any way you could. Late night college radio shows, magazines, fanzines, combing the bins of music stores and trying to discern which album covers looked cool. If you were lucky, someone had an older brother or sister or babysitter that would make them a mixtape, and that would be passed around, filled with songs by bands that you didn't necessarily like, but they seemed offbeat enough to listen to. It was an annoying time, but when you found a band that spoke to you, it was more satisfying than a 10-second Google search could ever be. When I got older and started to meet people in the local music scene here in Toronto, I inevitably rubbed shoulders with people involved in the Toronto hardcore punk scene, a scene I knew existed when I was in high school due to my late-night college radio listening, listening to shows like Aggressive Rock and In My Head on CKLN and Fast and Bulbous on CHRY. But it was a scene I watched, or rather listened to, from the sidelines, By the time I started to go to hardcore shows, it was a little past my formative stage. I enjoyed the shows, drank up the scene, but again, never dove too deep. I was too distracted by other scenes. But I will say this. Some of the people I met back then remain good friends, and even though we might not see each other very often, sometimes years in between, when we do meet, it's like not a day has gone by. Also, a lot of them are some of the coolest upright people I've ever met. To the layperson, even to this day, punk rock is nothing but a bunch of hooligans beating each other up. That's pretty laughable, but isn't that why punk rock exists? To laugh at these uninformed squares, right? To me, punk rock remains vibrant because it is always refreshing and rebooting itself. Phases, stages, and generations pass through it, and each one valid each one notable. When it comes to my city of Toronto, I am most interested in the scenes that passed before me. We always hear about the scenes in the big marquee cities like New York and Los Angeles, but to look back and realize that the same thing was happening in your city, it is cause for wonder and pride. I am proud of Toronto and proud of the bands that came before our band. I respect them for doing it before I got there, and now that the dust has settled, the time has come to gather it up for all to see, to document it, and show the world 
Whether they knew it or not, things were abuzz, and some very good music was going on under their noses here in T.O. In 2011, Liz Worth authored Treat Me Like Dirt, an oral history of punk in Toronto and beyond, between the years of 1977 and 1981. It was terrific, very well researched. It is the perfect book if you're someone like me who craved a primer on my own city's punk rock beginnings. Even if you're not from Toronto, it's a great glimpse to how cities outside of the so-called hubs like London and New York reacted to the punk explosion. Don Pyle's Trouble in the Camera Club book, also from 2011, covers the Toronto punk scene visually through his exceptional, glorious photos, so beautifully laid out. If you read those two books in tandem, you, get, you can get a really good sense of Toronto punk from the late 70s to the tip of the early 80s. And if you top it all off with Colin Brunton's three-hour-plus documentary on the same era entitled The Last Pogo Jumps Again, it may very well entitle you to a free ride up the CN Tower. Now the baton has been passed forward, and documenting Toronto punk continues with Tomorrow is Too Late, an impressive 300-plus page coffee table-sized tome about the Toronto hardcore scene in the 80s, painstakingly put together by Derek Emerson and Sean Cheery with help from Simon Harvey as contributing writer, Steve Perry conducting many of the interviews, Tim Freeborn transcribing and proofreading, and tons of Jill Heath's photographs. And when I say impressive, I really mean it. I flip through its pages, chock full of everything any frothing fan wants from a music book. An oral history of the scene by the people who were there, never-before-seen photos, flyers, and more flyers, fanzines, and of course, a 7-inch exclusive EP to go along with each copy. The book comes out on Saturday, October 13, 2018, and the launch happens the same night at the Hard Luck Bar with Negative Gain, Sudden Impact, Chronic Submission, and Creative Zero all coming together to play. If you're in Toronto, you have to attend. Grab a book and support the scene. As I record this, tickets are already half sold, so at this point, I suggest you act fast and grab them before they're all gone. This past August, I went over to Derek Emerson's house to talk about the book with him, Sean Cheery, and Simon Harvey. The how, the why, and the what this book is all about is laid out here. And to avoid any confusion, right off the top, Derek, Sean, and Simon will introduce themselves because four people talking on a podcast can get confusing. And even though none of them talked over one another, which often happens in these situations, it's best to have them introduce themselves to hear their voices off the top. So let's start. Derek Emerson, Sean Cheery, and Simon Harvey are this episode's guests on the Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Danko's co host, hello for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from Fox Out. Stop playing. Podcast is the 
boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts now. Uh, I'm Simon Harvey. Um, I started listening to punk rock around 1982 when I was a small child. Um, I got into punk in the sense of uh, discovering hardcore and it becoming more than uh, just a little bit of music around 1985. And um, I have never really stopped. And uh, I do a record label called Ugly Pop that uh, reissues a lot of this music. And I uh, write about punk a lot. And um, Still occasionally go to shows. Um, still buy a lot of records. Um, I guess that's my qualifications. I still have short hair and don't have a beard. I also am beardless. I'm uh, Derek Emerson. Um, so I started my participation in the scene um, sort of around 84, 85. Did a couple of fanzines that were more kind of on the thrashy side and the crossover metal-y kind of hardcore stuff. Um, by the mid-80s, I uh, started a band with some friends called More Stupid Initials, MSI. Uh, we put out a couple of 7 Inches at the time. And uh, so, yeah, z- zines and bands is sort of where I came from in the, uh, in the Toronto hardcore scene. And I'm Sean Cherry, and I started doing interviews. Actually, Derek and I entered the scene about the same time. And ironically, we didn't even know each other that well at the time. And And you put out an MSI. I put out an MSI record. So I started doing interviews for CKLN, a show called Exposure, that was interviewing bands coming to town or bands from Toronto playing in town. So I started doing that when I was 16 uh, with a buddy of mine, and then we started doing a fanzine called Still Thinking. And we did probably only three issues of that over the two and a half years that we did it. There were bigger, thicker zines, and then we started putting out records. So the, one of the more prominent ones was a compilation in about 87 called uh, Progress and um, was a benefit for a group uh, called Tools for Peace that was doing work in, in Nicaragua. And I was one of the more political guys in in the scene at the time. So that was my foray into punk. But I started, my first concert was a Teenage Head opening for Triumph at the CNE. Spencer Mack was there as well. I didn't know Spencer at the time. And that was my first show. And then my second show was Devo. And then from there, it just all went totally hardcore. So I'm here in Derek's basement. There's three guys who are working on this book, and it's all about the Toronto hardcore scene, and it's something that interests me quite a bit. I'm glad to see this book is uh, about to be released onto the world. I'm I'm staring at um, a working copy of it, and I've been able to flip through the pages, and man, I can't wait till this book is finished and it's in my hands. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Toronto 
And so uh, I love to read all about the music scenes in Toronto. So yeah, please tell me w- what this music Toronto music book uh, is about. Well, I think that um, part of it is inspired by the fact that there was an earlier scene, so the 70s scene, and that, a lot of that's covered in Liz's book, and it's a great right. book, yeah. um, and Don Pyle's uh, Trouble in the Camera Club. Oh, you're right. Exactly. So like, there's, there's a few books that have kind of um, covered that early scene really well, and we felt like there's a lot of stuff from the 80s that just kind of fell into a void. And for us, we all grew up in Toronto as well, and we all participated in the scene to various degrees, doing fanzines, doing bands, and all of that stuff, putting on shows. And so, like, we know the value of what was happening there and of those bands. And we feel like, I guess there was a, an oversight of a lot of those bands. And I think there's a feeling of that, too, that these bands felt like, eh, we were actually pretty good. And we didn't really get a shot at um, showing the world what, what um, you know, we were capable of here in Toronto in the 80s for the hardcore side of things. So we thought, you know... This is a chance to kind of right some wrongs and, and get the word out there. And the book itself is going to come with a 7-inch of um, unreleased material of 10 bands, actually, in about 11 minutes. So it's crammed on there. But uh, part of that is to give people around the world a chance to hear these bands that wouldn't have got a chance otherwise. Throughout the research of the book, part of what we realized is that what limited the band... There's a couple things that really limited the band. I guess I'm giving it a spoiler alert already right out of the gate. But um, a lot of the bands from Toronto didn't tour. And so the word didn't spread outside the city. And another thing is a lot of the releases were done on cassettes, which sold very well locally, right? They would sell four or 500 copies. That was common. But those copies didn't travel to L.A. or Boston or, or you know, into Europe or, or whatever. So these bands had a very strong local following. And... Um, we wanted to kind of broaden their uh, scope and, and show people outside of these borders of Toronto or, or Ontario that these bands mattered. And so putting the book together and the 7-inch companion piece, I think that's our kind of tribute to some of these bands that I think should have got a little bit uh, more dues. You want to say something, Simon? Well, something I also think is valuable is, that, I mean, we spoke about uh, Liz Worth's book, Don Pyle's book. Those are those are both fantastic books. There's the Last Pogo documentary. There's, Colin Brunton's uh, absolutely four-hour epic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of 70s Canadian or Toronto punk reissued on record and CD. Um, generally, academics love 70s punk. It's uh, The received wisdom is that it's all about... Uh, fashion, exciting ideas. It's basically sped up, accessible rock and roll. There's all these ideas about, uh, you know, women coming to the forefront for the first time and and gender issues and and, uh, big gay presence, the whole art school thing. Hardcore, on the other hand, um, used loosely to refer to, you know, punk the next stage after that stuff passed on, is viewed as this kind of monochromatic blur by white guys with shaven heads beating each other up in the pit. And there's not supposed to be ideas. There's not supposed to be interesting characters. It's just supposed to be a bunch of violent macho men. And we know that that's not the case whatsoever. And you have several narratives, I think, about what hardcore was, what punk was after 1978 or so. And they tend to be either that, that it was just this idiotic macho thing, or it simply didn't happen. You know, uh, Sid Vicious died, and then fortunately Nirvana came along and right. brought it all back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, none of these narratives is correct. And um, Toronto, especially, as, as Derek was saying, because we didn't tour, we didn't make records, really, has really been left out. And there was a lot of things happening. I mean, it's a big city with a, with a deep arts community, a multifaceted arts community. 
And uh, these bands had places to play. They put out records. Uh, people made fanzines. This changed a lot of people's lives. And there was also another thing I think is an archetype of 80s hardcore that is especially not correct in Toronto is there's that whole idea that it's almost like a Revelation Records marketing thing where, where hardcore in the 80s was straight-edge kids on skateboards and, you know, DYS. And there was so much more to it. A lot of those 70s ideas about gender and, and uh, sexuality and so on actually became far more viable and less commercial. And we had the queer core scene and so on and Fifth Column in Toronto. These were all aspects of punk that have been that are critical to the later development of the culture. I mean, you go into any department store or grocery store nowadays and there's vegan sections. I mean, mm. where did veganism start? Yeah. Where were the first place you met transgender people? It was in hardcore. And uh, so I think it's a vital piece of Toronto and Canadian cultural history, not simply about, you know, here's some records we like that should have been on vinyl. Yeah, you, you make a good point that there is this kind of void. There's been hard books on hardcore scenes, but it's always like New York, right? Like there's yeah, like yeah. three books on New York and there had to be other scenes. And I think only now that the dust is settling, people can actually are taking their steps back and like you guys and, and making these books for each scene. I think, I think what gets coverage is hardcore with a capital H. As I say, that sort of like that, sort of Boston, New York. Boston is another yeah. one. Yeah. Or Southern LA, Southern California. Right, right. But they're a very codified, specific version of like capital H hardcore. Right. And I think what we're talking about more is small H hardcore. It's the punk that came along that was more serious and rougher and but took on a million forms. There was like mm-hmm. tough guy skinheads and like yeah. crass vegans and weird queer core kids and innocent suburban kids on skateboards like tape trading. I mean you're, you're all- talking about Toronto specific. Yeah, well, Toronto had all of those things. Yeah, that's what I mean. In the yes. Toronto scene, that's that's what that's what I noticed yeah. when I uh, glimpsed into the scene as an outsider. I noticed that oh, it wasn't like New York or or Boston yeah. as I was and, led to believe in. And we asked everybody when we were interviewing them. We did a lot of interviews with Steve Perry at CIUT, and we were interviewing everybody. And we said, "Was there a Toronto sound?" And everybody said. No, like yeah, maybe you'd no. get, there was a mix of like West Coast, LA, and there was a mix of, of UK stuff, but nobody ever said, oh, the, you know, the Toronto sound was this. Yeah. Like maybe Brian Taylor did, I think, you know, but a few, most people sort of avoided the, defining it. And there's been some great books too on the, you know, the Queen Street scene in the 80s. So people have this memory of, you know, all these bands that happened in, in the 80s and Elvis Mondays and, you know, A Change of Heart. That and was the partly punk. It, right? was, it was that post-punk. So Nick Smash did a great book as well. It came out in the covers like 79 to 85 called Alone and Gone. He did a small little run of it. I think he's done about 200 copies oh, of yeah, it. He was in the Rent Boys and he did uh, Smash Zine and put out, he was one of the first guys to put out tapes. And there was a huge thing, a lot of, uh, the Toronto zines put out tapes. So uh, Fifth Column had Hyde, which had cassettes. He had smash tapes. It was sort of one of the first things where people started putting out tapes. Hmm. Yeah. I think the one thing that I should, I should, we, we should mention is that uh, also Toronto, and it's had its book already, but there's that whole Kensington Market BFG scene. I was going to mention that book. That is a uniquely Toronto yes. thing. There is no equivalent of that that I know of anywhere else. That is a, a unique Canadian, Toronto yeah. cultural moment. I was going to mention that with with Liz's and Don's book. Yes. And um and that's absolutely valid and it's it's a principal part of our book, but it is not far from the entire scene. And a lot of people I think would have would have almost de- defied them defined themselves in opposition to some aspects of that. Right. Look. Um yeah, you couldn't ignore that the goose were important, but I think that um the film about the scene from the time period was called Not Dead Yet, right? And 
I think there's a feeling of that film that they kind of glorified the market scene and the goofs in particular and their fans and how they live and they kind of I think that it left the scene with a feeling of like that the rest of us weren't represented. That's not how we live. Where's the where is that suburban kid on the skateboard? Where is, you know, the uh, transgender all of that was kind of left out of the mix and so again, with this book, we're tr- we're trying to put an effort into giving a more balanced approach to what that's the whole scene was. And the goofs were definitely a part of it. But you'll see in the book, you know, they're one small part of it. There's a sliver of that, and there's a whole bunch of other... Uh, there's a rainbow of, of options of things that were going on in the scene that could appeal to different people. And some of it, maybe you don't like, but that's fine. It, it was... It's again going back to sort of like a high school. There's cliques, and some of them you get along with, and some of them you right. don't. And the yeah. violent skinheads that we talk about in the book, they were part of it. And whether you like them or not, or wanted to be around them, a lot of people may, maybe didn't, but they were there. And so we're documenting all of that the good, bad, ugly, and we're putting it out um, as to how we saw things and how most of this is written in, as an oral history, with, in, you know, coming from the words of the people who were there. And so this is the feelings that they had. And some of them people might not agree with, and there's probably some words in there that people aren't going to be happy about seeing. or I, I, you know, But it was the feeling. We're trying to capture the feeling of what it was like to be part of that scene. Well, you mentioned that it was hard to describe the Toronto sound because maybe it was just there was so, much so inclusive, yeah, yeah, to the point where it kind of got muddied, you know, uh, in, in creating a signature sound yeah and we were we were late to hardcore like we were very early to punk so the first wave punk comes Toronto's very much there and we were trying to figure out what was the starting point and there's no real clear starting point but there's a couple things so there was a big show there was this anti-nuke show what was the official title Rock of it? Rock Against Radiation that was at City Hall okay. in 1980 and DOA's the headliner and then a bunch of old you know first wave punk bands were there and it's sort of, you know, maybe the start of it. And then there was two Dead Candy shows back-to-back at the concert hall in 81, 82. And the first time, it's L'Etranger is opening and Screaming Sam. So first wave punks and, you know, L'Etranger is sort of that clashy-sounding band in between. And then the second time around, it's Young Lions and Youth, Youth, Youth are opening. For, so until, you know... 81, there's not clear signs of hardcore, whereas you're seeing in the West Coast, like 78, 79, 80, we're late to hardcore. But we sort of created our own sound out of all these diverse influences. So people were hearing, people were listening to American hardcore and buying it. People were going down to the record peddler and grabbing it. But we weren't making hardcore until 81, maybe. But there was also yeah. there was also a strong British influence, and uh, so Brian Taylor talks to us about that, and and knowing you know his position at Record Peddler, he saw what people were buying, and and there was a lot of um, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, people that were into the British style, right? And so Toronto had that British foundation, and then the people started to listen to American hardcore, so they kind of started to blend those sounds. I think Youth 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 is a good example of that. They started out a little bit more on the UK side, and then they they played with some bands, I think, like the uh, Subverts, um, and I think they were supposed to do a show with The Fix, but I don't think that show happened. I don't think The Fix showed up. But anyway, they got exposed to some of that American hardcore, and I think that changed, and then they played with Bad Brains as well in, I think it was 82... Um, and so seeing those things firsthand, I think that sort of helped them to speed up their sound a little bit. And then by the time they put out the Sin record, like you get a sense that this is now a hardcore band. This is that they've lost that sort of British uh, feel that they had earlier on in the demos, and they've sped up a little bit, and they've got a, a different sort of rhythm going on. And so that Toronto sound, I think original Toronto sound, was a mixture of that British and the American styles, and kind of they kind of commingled for a little while, and then 
sort of uh, they left the British stuff behind. And there's still obviously those cliques and bands that like GBH and the Exploited and whatever would come here and do shows and there'd be wildly popular, uh, popularly attended shows. But as far as the bands go, I think they took more of an American sort of direction. I think if you if you lived in 1981, 1980 in Southern California and you were a punk kid, you owned the Circle Jerks, Group Sex, and Black Flag, Damaged. And if you were in Bo- and those were the bands you were going and seeing. And if you lived in in Boston, you were going and seeing SSD and DYS. So you bought the kids will have their say and you know Brotherhood in Toronto. There was no record, R- not really early on. There wasn't a, a, a few records that came out that could establish on on Wax a sound that people were listening to that they could kind of become influenced by. You mentioned a lot of bands put out cassettes. Mm-hmm. So what what is it, can you guys say, that why is it that those scenes had bands with like solid vinyl releases, but, but our bands were just still doing the whole homespun cassette thing? I think there's a, there's a couple things. Um, one... When you talk about those scenes, you talk about labels like Discord or you talk about, I don't know, like what other examples of labels, SST or, do you know what I mean? Like there's examples of labels and organization behind it where they had groups of people that were, that knew about pressing records and getting this thing out there. And then once the record's out there, that can establish, pave a road for the touring, right? You've got a record, you can go promote it. Maybe people in that town have already heard of your band. So you get some people to show up at your gig because we didn't have that sort of person spearheading things again back to brian taylor for for you know he did a lot of good in the fact that he at least documented these bands but he didn't really have the know-how to go out and put this stuff out and didn't have the finances didn't have the know-how cassettes were easy and so he um forged a relationship with um a gentleman at who owned a studio called accusonic and through him is Paul uh, Gallion. And so they uh, had this arrangement basically where Brian got his first shot at sitting behind the board and recording bands. And he, he had told us that he always kind of knew in his mind how he would do it. He'd never had any real formal training, but he knew, he just felt it, right? And, and he had a passion for recording these bands. He didn't know what exactly he was going to do with those recordings. He just knew, he had a sense that this stuff is important and it shouldn't be lost to time. And so he made it his mission to record all these bands. Didn't have the resources or know-how to put out vinyl, but within, within uh, Accusonic, there was a side uh, business called AccuDub, which allowed him to basically record the bands and then take the tape straight to the cassettes and he'd have a bank of 30 cassettes, right. go in there and dub them real time and then just take them to the peddler, right? And so it was just a an ease of use kind of thing where, and also Paul Gallion would, would front him the cassettes. He didn't have to pay for them up front. So he'd basically go sell those cassettes, give Paul the money back and get the next round of cassettes going. And uh, Sudden Impact kind of referenced it too. They said, you know, we could try and round up a few thousand dollars to put out a record or we could take back some empties and dub off another 20 cassettes, which one's easier, right? right? And so I think in a lot of cases, a lot of the bands took the path of least resistance, which at the time seems like the easier route. And obviously that, you know, as as people learn later in life, and sometimes the easiest route isn't actually the easiest route in the long run, or not the best route. And um, so that's, I think, why cassettes were more popular. Um, the organization, and then that again led to a lack of touring because there wasn't product to put out there and get it, out, get your name out there to to organize these tours. So I think they kind of went hand in hand a little bit. The big one is the Chio Hardcore '83, like Brian's comp tape with all those great bands on it. To us. Steve Perry kept saying, that's our Boston, not L.A. You know, it's our equivalent of, you know, here's the scene, but it was a tape, so. 
to address the touring touring point of this, um, so I was in a band in the mid '80s in Toronto called uh, More Stupid Initials (MSI), and uh, I guess there were a couple of reasons why we never did big tours. Like like you were saying, you would go to New York or you go wherever and you do a one off show, and that's yeah. your big. You know, we would go on sort of long extended weekends and that kind of thing. We would go to like our first tour tour we ever did was a few shows down in the states. We went with Sons of Ishmael, who were kind of like our brother band. We shared a member, in fact. Um, the guitarist in Sons of Ishmael, Paul Morris, played bass in MSI. So we went as both bands. We packed ourselves in a van. We went down to um, uh, the Jockey Club in Newport, Kentucky, uh, which had like ton, like a storied history. And it was pretty awesome. We got to play there um, about a few months before the end of the place. And so we got to see all the autographs on the walls. And we were kind of like, this is our first you know, outing. And, uh, but, you know, 30 people showed up. And, you know, and then we went to Kent and uh, JB's in Kent got closed the weekend before we got there. Nobody told us. We showed up. They ended up putting us in a uh, like a frat house party or whatever, which was the, one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. Like the house got destroyed, like literally fucking being torn apart, like banisters falling and floors smashing. It was insane. But the point is, you didn't know what you're getting into. You go away for a weekend and n- none of the shows turned out the way you thought they were going to. Right. And we couldn't make any money at it. And nobody had a van and all these things. So, And Simon's point about crossing the border. We had a song about that, getting refused at the border. And so all these things kind of kind of happened. Now, the flip side of that is, so not only was it difficult to get these shows, and, and when you got the shows, they didn't often pan out the way you thought they were going to. Yeah. But the flip side of that is in Toronto, we had a super vibrant scene, especially around the time this our band formed, where the DMZ was a punk-owned uh, and, and run club by the Goofs. And shortly after that, the Starwood Bridge Ildico's Club, which is known by three names, but basically I guess Ildico's is how it's most famously known. Like that club, you could just phone up there and book a show and local bands would get 300 people showing up. So when you do the math on that, you're thinking, okay, I can play a show here and get 300 people to play to. There's a great crowd that loves what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Or I can get in a van and play in a frat house to 20 people or 50 people or whatever shows up and maybe not that much appeal. Um, let alone when you get on a show with a big out-of-town band. And we did tons of opening slots for you know The Exploited or Youth of Today or SNFU, these bands, Seven Seconds. And you would get five, 600 people at these shows, and you'd get paid well. You know, the Garys put on the Seven Second show that we played. They feed you. They pay you. Uh, we sold like a 1000 bucks worth of, worth, of, worth of merch that night. Not that we were in it at all for the money, but just for comparison. Bucks, no, but in the <laughs> really 80s, good. right? And so, yeah. like, we came away from that going, okay, so... And, and most of the bands, I think, were in the same situation, like Direct Action or Sudden Impact. They could play these shows and make, a, make good money... It's not a hassle. You don't have to worry about borders. You don't have to worry about all these things. So it kind of made us complacent in a way, the bands from Toronto. It was like, we've got a great scene here, which is what we're documenting in the book. But in some ways, that scene kind of bit us in the ass because it didn't didn't push us to go and and tour. Whereas a band like... Uh, SNFU, you're from you're, yeah. you, you know you're from Alberta or whatever. Yeah. You're DOA and you're in Vancouver. You're kind of a little bit isolated. You're going to go up and down the coast. You're going to adventure a little bit more, be more adventurous. Right. And the Toronto bands didn't necessarily feel that they needed to do that. And in hindsight, that's a it was a bit of a crutch. And unfortunately, it helped to keep us a little bit more insular and not spread the word, which is what we're trying to so do. So Toronto the is an amazing city. Is what you're saying, and that's why well, you're was. doing the book. Yeah, yeah, it was. I was going to say that. Yeah, right. Ever since they took down uh, Honest Ed's, it's just 
all bets are off me. <laughs> um, <coughs> I've said something very similar to that. And the silver dollar is down now. Yeah, the building's silver, gone, yeah. like as of a week ago. Yeah. And like Direct Action was saying, they could make like was it two thousand yeah, dollars playing like Larry's? Like they they at their peak of their game. And that's what year is that? Like, this is like, like eighty six, eighty five. So the yeah. equivalent to that is what is that? They could live grand, off of it. Ten grand today. Like, yeah. Why would you? They could live off of being at Larry's. It's crazy. Like bands toured, but they toured uh, Ottawa or Montreal. Like we had a vibrant scene, so there was hardcore Sundays at Larry's, and there was hardcore Mondays in Montreal, and people would go back and forth or Ottawa. We've got stories of many, but crossing the border or going outside of you know to, uh, province over that just didn't happen. Like you know, probably is Problem Children the first band that really they went to the East Coast, they went to Europe, and then Sons of Ishmael does it after them. Yeah, I mean, but they were the groundbreakers, and then Hype did a yeah. West Coast and East Coast tour. But very few bands, like Direct Action did a tour that the band fell apart and they played CBGBs, but, you know, and it wasn't the original band anymore because, you know, they were having a range of issues and weren't going to cross the border, so. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's get to the book. I mean, we've talked about the Toronto scene, but this act, the, the actual book, how long has this been in the making? It's two years. Yeah, it started... Uh, Derek and I and a number of people are on a number of Facebook groups and we were, you know, reminiscing about shows and, you know, we said, why hasn't somebody done a book about this? We mm. kept posting about it. There should be this. And we know, like, Steve Perry's got an amazing blog and has captured, you know, some of the artifacts and, you know, the recordings of the era, but nobody's put out a, a book like this and, you know, they Treat Me Like Dirt's great for the 70s, but nobody's put out the 80s book and we felt like, well who else is going to do this we did fanzines we put up records we should be the ones doing this we can't wait for somebody else to do this so we just started talking yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to the the whole diy ethic of the time right um you look around you go who's gonna do this no one all right i guess it's me and even the way we're funding this book um like sean and i early on when we said we, we should do this um sean had brought up the idea of let's talk to publishers and mm. the very first conversations yeah. were from the publishers were you know what you got to do? And my answer was, I got to do fuck all. I'm going to do this thing exactly the way we want to do it. We don't have to answer to anybody. This is not a job for us. This is a, a pleasure to be doing this. This is something that's that's fun for us and we're excited about it. And we want it to come out exactly how the people that were there know it should be, right? And so when publishers that are talking about it, a scene that they didn't know anything about and they say, here's what you got to do, I didn't like the vibe of that. So what we did instead was we basically looked around like you would back in the day where you just basically look to your friends and say, okay, I got 50 bucks, I got 100 bucks, whatever. And we basically did a you know an oh. informal Kickstarter kind of oh. thing yeah, where people, yeah. people in the scene that have a vested interest in this uh, story being told offered money. Like it was very kind of amazing and impressive that like people were calling us up and saying can i get involved with this to help fund it and so the funding of it was like a groundswell of people that actually want this thing to exist so it felt good that the scene itself is the one that's making this book as well as you know sean and simon and i putting it together and doing a lot of the the lifting on it it's there's a lot more people behind it that actually right. want it to exist very and that, that was important yeah, yeah. it's very collaborative been like a good dozen people or more that were involved in some capacity either providing their photos or you know steve did tons of hours of interviews tim with us freeborn. tim freeborn did a lot of transcription he was in sons of ishmael we had you know tons of other people helping out with this it wasn't just the three of us doing this and 
And I think one of, one of the other things that impressed us, I mean, we're obviously not doing this for money. We're probably not going to make money, if not lose a bunch of money on this project, as you do on things that, of this nature. Um, but there was no talk of that from anybody across the board. It was like just, you're saying, it's like a yearbook. Yeah, it was, but it was this feel of, you know, like sometimes when you, when you talk to bands and, they, and you say, hey, well, let's put out a record or something. There's like, okay, well, what's in it for me? Are you trying to cash in on my band's, you know, cachet or something like that? There was none of that sort of vibe. There was no pretension from anybody. It was just, what do you need? Let's do this. Let's do this as a team. Let's get together and put it out. And it was, so it was a really good vibe across the board. Like all the people we dealt with, it was pleasurable dealing with everybody everybody wants to see this thing happen and they're very supportive about it so yeah it's been exciting that it's that it's been so well received from the community that it's about and been supported to the fact that the community is helping to put it out and um like you said it's an oral history so how many people were actually interviewed at least 150, 130, 150 yeah, people. 130, 150. Because yeah. some of the people we interviewed, like as a collective, as a band, and there might not have been members there. We haven't done an actual calculation on it, yeah. but it's probably in the 130 to 150 range. So who's doing all the interviews? You mentioned Steve and uh, who else? A number, a number of the interviews um, we did at CIUT, so in the studio. Oh, I see. And that would be for the group interview. So if we had a band and let's say somebody lived overseas, we would do a call-in line and then you'd have maybe two or three members live in the studio and one calling in. And it just was the easiest way to kind of get a group of people together. When we were doing single interviews, Sean would often uh, you know, just call someone up, we'd tape it over, over the phone, and we'd transcribe it from there. So, I was going to say the transcribing and... Of a million plus yeah, plus yeah. Of Derek did a ton, Tim Freeborn did a ton of the transcription, Fran, Fran as well did a bunch. And really, it was just that, like doing those interviews. And then we had some people, we asked them to write stuff. So like the key bands, we wanted to get them in the studio. Some people were living in other places. And then we got people um, from other places. So we had Keith Morris willing to talk. I was going to ask, how about some outside scenes? Yeah, so Keith Morris, we had had a number of people. Some of them worked their way in. Like I got a a quote from Daryl Jennifer from Bad Brains, and it didn't really work in because we had covered the story through another angle. And oh, yeah. you cut that person out and you put Daryl in. It was Freddie. It was Freddie Pompey from Vile oh, Tones, oh, and it was yeah. it was la- it was his All last right, probably his last interview yeah. before he passed away yeah. in the hospital yeah. in Philadelphia. So you don't kick out yeah, Freddie no, over. No. Yeah, <laughs> you think, you think yeah. Freddie is uh, Freddie. Well earned his place in this yeah. book, and although he wasn't uh, like a huge fan of hardcore per se, he did have some things to say that were kind of an interesting perspective of the bands that were a little bit before the hardcore scene, and then his feelings as things kind of progressed into the 80s and where he saw his place in that and how he saw those bands so it was kind of an interesting perspective I think and like Sean said that was probably his last interview mm-hmm. um, and he was very uh, supportive to, to give us that time and, and do it from his uh, bed in the hospital um, but we talked there were a lot of quotes that we got from quote unquote famous uh, musicians some people from Bad Brains or Black Flag or this and that and virtually none of them made the book I think Henry Rollins is in the book and Keith Morris um and, and and Harley, yeah, Harley, Harley. Flanagan, yeah, um, and, and, and Ivy from the Rhythm Pigs. So there was a yeah. ton of quotes from him because uh, he said guess, some great things. And I guess, yeah. Uh, yeah, toxic reasons, but that's about it. And there were, but we had probably ten times that many quotes. They just didn't seem to fit the the feel of it. And again, like it felt almost like an outsider's point of view. In the cases of the people we just mentioned, they they seemed to get what the scene was about. It, it wasn't just sort of like, "Oh, your city was clean and you're right. friendly," and right. like the same, the, you know, the stereotypes that people would say about Toronto. We got a lot of that sort of thing from those people. A lot of people 
most everybody loved playing in Toronto, but they just didn't have real insight. And like Henry Rollins' um, comments, for example, like he had um, a, a great uh, working relationship with Jill Heath, for example, right? And she she tour managed Rollins' band, so he had some really good insights about Jill, who was one of the biggest supporters and 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 people that got the scene really going. And um, again, that's a person that we think deserves a lot of uh, respect and props. And so we're hoping that through this book. We can kind of open people's eyes to the fact that she was very important to the scene, and and um, and he contributed some words to that effect. And as did most people um, that we interviewed, they, nobody has a bad thing to say about Jill. And oh, she's yeah, one of she's my awesome. favorite people. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, it's not purely an oral history, though. It, it is it's not. There's a lot of these oral histories going around right now, yeah. and, and it, it's um, I'm biased because you know I, I did a bunch of writing for it, but uh, um, it's also not simply a narrative history. I mean. Uh, Part of the cultural relevance of, of punk, of hardcore, is that there are, I mean, I love dumb heavy metal, but a book about heavy metal like this, as much as I would read it, would not be as interesting because it doesn't have all these cultural manifestations right. outside. So we have, we've got chapters on, you know, fanzines and fashion and slam dancing and straight edge and skateboarding and skinheads and animal rights and anarchism and, you know, I mean, it's, it's endless. And, um, you need uh, you need some framing of that stuff. You need some sort of historical context. You need some, as I say, we didn't have room for a million and a half words of interviews. So if you're Which going is to cut what it you down, originally had let's, let's yes. say that let's yes. Say that. So well over a million over a million, and I think we're probably words. looking at closer yeah. to a million and a half. And um, so in order to, if you're going to scale that down to the the meat, so to speak, you need to then add some supporting text to buttress the the narrative and to you know um put these in some what does make it in from the interviews into a a more coherent story and and a uh a more complete accounting of the time and the the various dimensions that this took in i i think all of us as much as there's some hilarious stories in here about you know the standard rock and roll oral history stuff of you know inane violence and and you know debauchery and sex and drugs that's was the story for some people and that stuff's amusing reading, but you don't want to be reduced just to this catalog of sensation. Right. When there's stuff that happened that is way more enduring. Well, yeah, there's more to hardcore than, you know, like that would be expected in a rock and roll yeah. kind of... This isn't Motley Crue, you know, it's yeah, not the right. dirt. Right. Apart from Eric's part, Derek's part. <laughs> now, for He's him. wearing a Casablanca's records <laughs> shirt. Yes. Derek was essentially the um, the Nikki Six of Toronto hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been called that, but thank you. That's it's interesting. I would wear and, that with pride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially being in a straight edge band as he was, <laughs> that would. Uh, and the other thing that we captured too that I think is you know, and some of them were things that we didn't experience, but the venues. So all the uh, venues that were there, right. uh, the waves of venues. So we didn't, you know, I never made it to the turning point. We've got the sign there from Al Ridley sitting there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the upper lip places oh. like that. But you know. I started going to Larry's, the DMZ, uh, some of those places. It was great to get the stories. I even got um, the daughter of the guy that owned Larry's Hideaway to tell us some personal family stories. So we were able to get that. And then the club that we talk about that was sort of our era, Ildico's, um, uh, Doug Galbraith, who was the MC and with a boyfriend of Ildico who owned the club, you know, some some of the dirt on what how the club was functioning and things that we didn't know being kids just hanging out in this bar underage seeing hardcore shows that they really you know were were stretching themselves financially to make this place work since since yeah. you 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 asked 
people or since people kind of kickstarted their own Kickstarter for this project, yeah. who are you who are you making this book for? For someone who is maybe like twenty one years old and wants to know what preceded them, does this book speak to them? Because you mentioned yeah. like the daughter of the the club owner, like I could see how you guys would be fascinated by it. But did it lead you down paths where you're like, this is too inside. This is because we love this shit. And maybe, so, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, and, and some of it will just appeal to people that were in Toronto. But we, we know it will appeal to, you know, people that are in hardcore scenes elsewhere. Okay. Or, you know, the kids that are in the hardcore scene today that want to know the history of yeah. where this shit came from. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, like... For sure, we geek out to some degree about yeah. this stuff, right? And yeah. you're right. There's some things we went down a rabbit hole and we we're just like, holy shit, this is amazing. But maybe it's only amazing to us. There are a few moments in there that, that will be like that for sure. But um, we worked with, and I should give a plug to, we worked with a uh, designer on this uh, project, a company called Goods and Services Branding. So they're friends of ours outside of this. And um, I was working on the book one night at my office and uh, the owner of that company just kind of walked behind me and he's not really into the scene, although his wife was in a hardcore band, oddly enough, on the East Coast in the 80s. But he's not into this personally. And he just looked over my shoulder and saw all these photos and flyers and stuff on my screen. And he's like, what are you doing? This looks amazing. I don't know what the... So there was a, uh, an interest from someone that's not a part of the scene. And when we told him about what the story was, and he introduced it to his team, his staff. Um, a couple of them are into sort of modern hardcore uh, bands like Career Suicide and whatnot, but um, the, most of them aren't. They got into it too. And so when they started reading this text and seeing these images and they got passionate about it, that kind of gave us the confidence that, yeah, it's not just going to be a geek fest for the people who were there. It should be for the 21-year-old kids that are that are coming up and want to learn about the history. But it might even translate to people that don't necessarily know much about this music and they're just kind of curious. Because right. the, the, the other thing that we're mentioning here, uh, we talked a lot about the text. Uh, the book itself is physically large. It's nine and a half by 12 and three quarters. Am I looking at... That is the size? actual size. It's a massive, massive book. It's uh, when people you know listening to this, they can't see it, but when people actually see it, it's an oversized book, huge. It's 320 pages, um, and a lot of it is amazing photographs that have never been seen before, and a lot of flyers. So although there's a lot of text to read, there's about 110,000 words, so there's a good amount of text. There's tons and tons of visuals that people will have never seen before, and kind of give that insight into what that scene was about. And like I said, people that weren't even involved with it have been impressed with that aspect of it so again it's encouraging that maybe this thing will kind of translate to a crowd that's not necessarily just our core audience of people who were there in the 80s and that are buying this as that sort of high school yearbook they never had it might translate to other crowds as well and you guys are putting this self-publish you're going the self-publishing route absolutely uxb press yeah, so um, that's sort of the name of the company or whatever we want to call it, the vanity uh, company is UXB oh, okay. Press, okay. Um, which was inspired by Direct Action song title, UXB, Unexploded okay. Bomb. And so that's where that comes from. And the book title, in fact, actually is a nod to Direct Action as well. The book itself is called Tomorrow is Too Late. And that's one of the songs that they uh, that they put out on their uh, original cassette. And so Direct Action, I think, was a band that was key, amongst a few others that were like the, the linchpins of the scene, I think. Direct Action, Youth, 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 Young Lions, 
sudden impact, chronic submission. There's a list that's pretty uh, lengthy, but those are some of the, the key ones that we really wanted to give a nod to and say, you guys did a lot for us. And whether you know it or not, like it impacted the kids like us, like that were maybe a couple of years younger than uh, those bands, uh, but they inspired us to do something that has affected us for the rest of our life. And, you know, I, I don't know that they knew that, that they had that sort of an impact. Like when I was talking to uh, Dave from Direct Action, he was actually surprised that we would name a book after a song title of theirs, and he was—he felt flattered by it. And I'm just thinking, wow, like you—you you know, you don't know how good you guys really were. And I hope that they kind of get their dues now, and people will take a second look at that band and say, you know what, you guys were amazing, and now we we get it, you know. And with the book's release, you mentioned quickly off the top, there's going to be a vinyl. Uh, a company, uh, a company, like there'll be a, a seven a, inch, a, seven with, inch with, yeah. with the, yeah. So there's going to be a seven inch EP with ten unreleased tracks that only ever made it onto tape or demos. So some of them were released through those tapes, or some of them didn't see the light of day. So ten bands is it about eleven minutes ten worth? Bands, 11 minutes. minutes. So you know, stretched out. Some of them are thirty seconds or ten seconds, and some of them are a good minute and a half. And you guys, who's printing up the vinyl there? It's well, it's going to be on Ugly Pop Records. So we're going to release. Oh. release. Uh, I should guy. say, we should make it clear. Um, this book will be available from us direct through mail order, and obviously around the world. And I will give you the. Uh, the website for that and it will be available at the release show and um in person from us it'll also be distributed th you know through more conventional channels and be in bookstores and record stores uh but if you want the record the the seven inch ep that comes with the book that will need to be that only comes with the copies that come directly from us or like whether through the mail or through shows um now i'm looking at the poster here and you mentioned that will also be included with every copy, or no? Uh, that, I think, well, every that, copy. I, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably going to be the same kind of a thing. The reason why we're um, doing... It's a, it's a poster of a bunch of flyers that didn't make the book, and now it's in poster form. Yeah, there's, um, I guess, about almost 100 flyers that um, are pretty great, but they just we ran out of space. There's a lot packed into that book, but... We had um, over 10,000 images to pick from. We narrowed it down to about 800 that are in the book. So again, much like the text, we're using 10-15% of what we gathered. That's all the space there is. So it was kind of a shame to us to, to waste these flyers. So we thought, what could we do? So we, we're going to end up printing a poster that's going to be approximately 9 inches by about 29 inches. So it's a long, sort of oblong shape. On one side will be posters from flyers from uh, shows from... The early half of the 80s, the other side will be later half of the 80s. Um, and the idea of that is that we'll, we'll most likely we'll be giving away that poster as part of the package at shows. Um, and if people don't want to buy the book, we'll probably be selling the poster as a as a added uh, item that they can purchase if they wish. But if they're buying the book, at especially at the launch show, this will just come with it as a, a bonus piece. Um, but the book launch show itself, so we're going to have, um, there's four... 80s Toronto hardcore bands that are reforming to play the book launch show. Um, so the lineup is going to be uh, Negative Gain, Sudden Impact, Chronic Submission, and Creative Zero. 
And so it'll be the only time you're ever going to be able to see all four of these bands play on a stage ever again, I'm sure. Um, and two of those bands haven't played together since the 80s. Uh, Sudden Impact and Chronic Submission have done a couple of one-off shows over the years, mm-hmm. but even they're pretty pretty sporadic, mm-hmm. and I can only imagine that they won't be doing that forever. So this is going to be one of the last chances, I imagine, to see those two bands. But Negative Gain and Creative Zero haven't played together um, since the 80s. So this will be a first for, for both those bands, and again, probably the only time they're going to do it. The show is going to be at Hard Luck, um, which is uh, Dundas and Bathurst area, and it's on Saturday, October the 13th, 8 p.m. start. And it's part of, we should mention, this is part of the Not Dead Yet Festival, which is an annual DIY hardcore festival. It's one of the one of the principal um, hardcore events around the world now, I think, globally. Yeah, and all four of the bands playing at the uh, live show are also on the seven inch. So right, yeah, okay. So that's the connection for the for the live show, and people are flying in. So Greg uh, Charbonneau, who's in Creative Zero, is flying in for Victoria, and where is Grant's flying in from uh, Alberta? Grant uh, Slavin from Negative Gain, he's flying in to do the show. Uh, so yeah, there are a few people in the bands that aren't from that aren't living in Toronto now. They were from here, that will be flying in just to do the one off show. Wow! Yeah, that's, that's really commitment. cool. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. I, I, I mean, I read Liz's book. This is the kind of the next chapter in the city scene, and I mean, I loved Liz's book. And just like sifting through the pages here, I don't want to. It's so delicate, but it looks it, so it cool. Yeah, don't worry about it. I mean, I know. <laughs> I just. <go> crazy. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know how I'm supposed to. Yeah, I don't know what stage this is in, but I mean, it looks fucking cool it's something that you can just sit and stare at for a few hours before you even start reading it it's one of those kinds of books where you have to like go through it a few times before you even read it you'll notice where this copy right now is sitting on a table on a coffee table on a right yes right well yeah it is it is (laughs) yeah i mean it is a coffee table-esque looking type it's a dark, caffeinated book. You sort of have this memory of the period, and you know we saw these pit shots, and the pits were always full of colored T-shirts. Like you think black T-shirts now, then it was like so funny white, seeing white, white, white and yellow and whatever, and so many women, and we literally had. Uh, probably about 50 people give us their photo and flyer collections. Derek was madly scanning for like a year solid practically for this. And the vast majority of the photos were from women. Like a lot of the photographers were women. So, and I'd say a lot of Jill's work is in there. Um, Kim. Kim uh, and Uh Alison Fox. So, yeah. So like Jill, yeah. Probably, yeah, probably like a third of the book or more is Jill's photos. Like it's just phenomenal that most of the scene was recorded by women and, and we had people, you know, we thought, oh, there wasn't that many women involved. And then I was interviewing Ed Ivey and he said, who was in the Rhythm Pigs in San Francisco. And he said, you guys had a lot of women. He goes, you know, and I was, well, what about San Francisco? You have this impression. He said, no, no, it was too violent. Women were getting out of the scene. He said, Toronto and Europe had a lot of women. Like he said, he didn't see that anywhere else. And he toured all over Canada and the U.S. So it's pretty phenomenal the amount of women we had in the scene. On, on that point of uh, female participation, um, 
what I found interesting when we were researching this, and obviously at the time you notice that females are, uh, that women are taking part in the scene and they're doing things. There weren't a lot in bands besides, you know, Fifth Column or maybe the odd member in, in a band here or there, but there was tons of participation from, like Sean was saying, about photographers, people doing zines, Jill putting on shows. Like, Jill was one of the most important promoters the city's ever seen when it comes to this type of music, and she was running that stuff. And she had people like Vivian that were working with her, and like the 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 women that were part of the scene although they were outnumbered there were more men at the shows than there were women um the women that were at the shows really participated they weren't just like just sitting there as uh, on the sidelines they were and in the pit too um there's a lot of photos that we see where there's a lot of women in the pit and you know when you think back like simon was saying earlier you know sometimes hardcore gets this knock about being this violent scene this lugheads just thrashing around the pit when you look at the Toronto one, the circle pit was a big thing here. I was going to say, it was a different kind of It was pit. a different kind of thing, right? And by the mid-80s, like in the early part of the 80s, if you fell down in a pit, you're probably going to get kicked in the head and nobody's going to help you up. And there was a, a more of a violent um, tendency to that earlier part of the hardcore scene, which is interesting because some people felt that was an energy that they liked about the scene that there was this unpredictability and by the mid to late 80s it became a little bit too kind of skipping around you know um it, it just became it lost its edge for some people that were there in the earlier days whereas some of the people that came in in the later part of the 80s they appreciated that that they could take part in this and they didn't have to worry about getting their head kicked in to go and have a good time in the pit at a show and as a result i think that more women felt welcomed in the pit as time went on in the 80s yeah. and yeah the pictures that we see in this 87 88 89 lots of women in the pit lots of women documenting things taking photos putting out zines and all of that stuff so it was a great um time where the the, the gender uh, you know equality was happening in the scene i like the fact that one thing we've talked about is that the book is is um you know multifaceted and, and we're trying to pre present a uh, a wider more diverse perspective on hardcore than books about hardcore usually do where they privilege one aspect that the author likes and all three of us do sort of represent loosely these different strands. I mean, Sean is a guy that comes out of the sort of, and I, I'm oversimplifying here, but is still a vegan, you know, very political, and was really into the whole crass records and MDC and so on. And I'm a kid that, you know, I was born in London, England, and I grew up loving Cockney Rejects and UK Subs and Cox Bar and then, you know, Minor Threat and Dead Kennedys and DOA after that. But I've always kind of been like the purest hardcore punk guy that, you know. And um, Derek was a guy that was into metal first and uh, crossed over as that whole thing happened, discovered Raw Power and DRI and Discharge and, you know, was part of that whole crossover movement. And um, we've all come to similar places. But I think each of us kind of represents loosely one of the strands of this story. We don't, neither of us, none of us is a sort of a clone of the other's experience of this. We all have this different perspective, and I think we all understand each other's, but it me means that the book is maybe a little bit more well-rounded than if we were all just the same guy. 